This is a fascinating lesson tonight as we continue to walk with Jesus. So let me say a prayer, and then we're going to dive into this. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the folks here and Edmund and out on the web and people that may watch this at another time. It's my sincere prayer that we might come together to fill our minds with a greater knowledge of you that will translate to a greater awe of your love for us in our hearts. And Lord, may that flow to our hands, that we can be your hands and feet of compassion and healing in this world. Lord, I do pray for safety tonight from weather and from so many other things. But Lord, we know ultimately our trust is in you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as always, text your questions during class to this number. If you have a handout, it's also on the bottom of the handout. So if you want to text your questions to that number, we are basically walking with Jesus. And this is an opportunity to study the teachings of Jesus, but with a little twist. We're going to sort of chronologically move with Jesus during the three or three and a half years of his ministry, and we're going to go where he went, basically in the order, as best we know, which you can't be entirely certain about all of these things, but as best we know, in the order and the places he went. And we'll stop at each place, and we'll take a look at that, what that place looks like now and what we can learn from it, and then we'll study what Jesus taught in that place at that time. So let me recap just a little bit. I'm going to show you a map. This is basically the uh, land of Israel, what we now call the land of Israel, in the time of Jesus. And our lesson started with Jesus over here in the Jordan River. And our first lesson was the baptism of Jesus and then 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert. And we looked at what the desert really was. And now I'm drawing again as we're going to move on our second lesson. He went to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you may remember, he went into the temple and he overturned the tables. And when he left Jerusalem, he went through Samaria all the way back to Galilee. And in Samaria, we saw him meet with the Samaritan woman. And if you remember, we talked about how Jesus turns a lot of things upside down. I mean, obviously, the tables, literally. But kind of the social structure in the gospel changes the way we look at things. Then our third lesson was in Galilee, and we went along the Sea of Galilee. We talked about Jesus choosing his disciples. We talked about how in the world could these diverse group of people really come together and some of the things Jesus did in the area of Galilee. And so in this lesson, he, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for the second time and then back to Galilee. He's going to go to Jerusalem for a feast and we're going to talk about some things that happened there, and then he's going to go back to Galilee. And you're going to see Jesus do this three or four times for the big feasts, but we don't know exactly how many times he was in Jerusalem, but he was traveling quite a bit. He was moving a lot. In our next lesson, we're actually going to go over here into the Decapolis and back up here into the Gentile lands. And so hopefully you'll kind of see how Jesus has a method to this madness and where he's going and how many people he is touching. So let's start in Jerusalem. He's left the Sea of Galilee, and he's got his disciples, and he goes to Jerusalem. And this is the map that's on your handout, but this is a great little map of the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Of course, you see on the Temple Mount, this is a valley right here, valley in the south, and then this is the 
Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, we see a lot of pictures from the Mount of Olives looking at the Temple Mount. Well, if you do that today, you look across a valley and you see the Dome of the Rock, basically a Muslim mosque. In those days, you would look across and you would see the Temple that Herod had rebuilt, Solomon's temple that Herod had rebuilt, a magnificent temple. And so it's sitting on the highest part. This is on a mountain here, on a hill. And so you see the temple area. Right by the temple, this Antonia fortress, this doesn't relate to our lesson. These are just interesting things. They literally built, the Romans built a fortress right by the temple so they could look down into that huge temple mount. We looked at that in our last lesson, but it's several football fields large, the temple mount, and they could, the soldiers could look down in there just to make sure nothing, you know, no revolt or anything big is happening in that area. But they quartered their soldiers right there by the temple. Herod the Great during his time, had a palace here, and then later, in the time of Jesus as an adult, Herod the Great is dead, but the palace is still there for the ruler of Judea. It would have been one of Herod's sons or grandsons, depending on the time. You have the palace of the high priest, you may remember, uh, and that's not for certain. And No one actually knows where the high priest's house was, but it's conjectured that it's there where I marked it on your map, but if you remember during the passion of Jesus, the last night of Jesus, he visited all of these places. But what I wanna talk to you about is an interesting place called the Pools of Bethesda. The Pools of Bethesda, they were not really very well known until relatively recent times, and there's been a lot of archeology span there, and the biblical account of these Pools of Bethesda, they're described pretty accurately, and as they unearthed it, they realized this matches the description in the Bible. So this must be the pool of Bethesda. So I wanna show you some pictures of what they've excavated of it, and then I wanna talk about something that happened at the pools of Bethesda. What happened to Jesus here? And you'll see him beginning to do things that increases that gospel being at odds with the Jewish leadership, and that you start to see the hostility building in his ministry, and I want to talk to you about why. Let me show you some pictures of the Pool of Bethesda. This is on the Temple Mount. In other words, it's in Jerusalem. It's on the top. The Temple Mount is just to the south of what I'm about to show you. But this big hole in the ground, if you will, are a series of pools. There's big, deep pools here, over here, back down here, on the northern end. And so there are a series of pools. In other words, as they started to dig, they realized, wait a minute, the pools of Bethesda wasn't just some fountain and, and a pool. It was a series of pools that are fed by springs that were very deep, very large. In the account I'm going to show, talk to you about, it talks about the pools of Bethesda were pools that had five stoas or five porches or five colonnades. Your various English translations will translate that differently. Here at Crossings, right out by our chapel, you know, we have pillars and a covered uh, colonnade that runs right along the side of it. That's what those would have looked like. So you have these huge pools, and I'll show you some better pictures here in a second. And there were supposedly five colonnades. And what you find as you get into here is you find the remains of five different colonnades. And so scholars realize this is the pool of Bethesda. So let me show you maybe a little better picture looking at it. 
We see a lot of structures in there because they were actually a series of pools. And uh, the, this pools are spring-fed out of, for example, right there is one of the openings for that. And so they've had water for a long time. And even before the time of Jesus, these pools are here. In fact, there is a temple to the Greek god Asclepius, who's the god of healing. And by the way, his symbol is a snake. And so that's why still today, kind of the symbol of physicians is the snake. It goes back to that Greek god of healing. So even before the time of Jesus, when the Greeks ruled this part of the world, this place was thought to have healing properties. I'm not telling you that it did, but the fact that there were springs there and they built a temple to the Greek god of healing there, this place obviously has a legacy of being a place of purification or a place of healing. <coughs> Excuse me. Go on and give you a little bigger view. This is one end of it. And so you'll see the pools down here. You'll see some of the remainders of the temple, the Greek temple there. But this complex is, is very long. It's very big. You can see it's really deep. These pools were pretty deep. This is uh, the northern pool. So this is an example of one of the pools. You can see how deep it was. You can see how you got down into it. And it's actually a little bit larger even than it looks in this picture. And then again on the southern end, you can see that there are some crusader structures. And when I say crusaders, I'm talking about about a thousand years after Jesus that were built on this site. But as you go down lower, you get down to the original pools. And then I want to show you the steps. This is first century. So this is the time of Jesus. This is a portion of one of the pools. But notice these steps going down into it. Very original. And then back up here, you see the remains of one of those covered porches. So when we get to this story and you start to read it, I want you to to realize that some of the clues in that story just fit this so perfectly. You're going to see this lame man saying, I can't get down into the water. Well, what he's saying is, I can't get down all these steps and get into the water before other people do. But you'll see, this is first century. This is really what was there at the time of Jesus. So those are the pools of Bethesda. Again, theorized, but not known until relatively recently as they began to dig down. And I'm sure we'll find more things as they continue to dig down into these pools. But a huge complex, because the Scripture is going to talk about there being a lot of people there. Well, now that you see this, you realize this is not just like a swimming pool. This is a large complex of pools, and there would have been a lot of people around this pool. So let's look at the scripture because there are a couple of really interesting lessons out of this. But that, this story happened there. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. So he's left Galilee. We're now in Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, which we know where the Sheep Gate is, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Bethesda means uh, the place of mercy, the house of mercy and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people, and you can understand that could accommodate a great number of people. It's a very big place. A great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked the man, do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirs up. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Pick up your bed, your sleeping bag, your, your blanket there and walk. So uh, he says that and at once, I mean immediately, the man is cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So I'm, that's what I'm doing. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Well, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had just slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found this man at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. They pursued him. They went after him. So this is an interesting little passage in John. There are a number of lessons that we could pull out of this. I want to pull one lesson, and I want to give you a little context around this. Because you're going to see Jesus begins to do some things that put him at odds with the religious authorities. So he had done... Two things went wrong here. The first is Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. The second is this man is carrying his sleeping bag, his mat, on the Sabbath. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, you may realize, I don't recall either one of those things being specifically mentioned, and they weren't. Which leads me to the first thing I want to talk about is, what was the basis for this conflict? I'm going to talk to you about uh, the way the Jews understood the law of Moses, understood the Old Testament, understood the covenant that God made with Moses 1,400 years before Jesus. The first is the Torah. The Torah is the written law of Moses. In about, I'm going to use approximate dates, 1400 B.C., Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai having brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and God speaks to him and gives him the law of Moses, the Torah. Uh, Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, carved on stone, you know, that's this event. The Torah refers to the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture, first five books of the Old Testament, and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So those things are what Moses gave to the people. Now, some of that is history. You have the story of Abraham and Adam and Eve. But most of that is the 613 commands that God gave the Israelites. It's a covenant he made with them. So we call it the Law of Moses or the Torah. Well, the Jewish uh, leaders of that time and Jews throughout time thought that not only did God give Moses the written law that Moses wrote down, but they, he also told him some things orally that he didn't write down. It's called the oral law. And that is something Moses just passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation to generation to generation. Well, eventually this oral law that's passed down from person to person and memorized uh, from in every generation, was written down 
a little bit after the time of Jesus because they were so, the Jews were so persecuted, they were afraid that every person who knew this would be killed. And so they literally wrote it down. Now, I know it's called the oral law, but it's been written down. And this is the oral law. And if you want to memorize this, good luck. This is called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is this written record of that oral law. And I'm going to talk to you about what's in the Mishnah in a minute, but as long as we're here, might as well tell you what the Talmud is. The Talmud, which is what Jews study a great deal today, is now the Mishnah is not in your Bible. It's not the Torah. It's not anything. It's oral transmission that the Jews believe God told to Moses with some additions here, which I'll tell you in a minute. Then the Talmud is something that the Jews worked on over centuries, and it is the text of the Mishnah, and it has commentary by different rabbis throughout the centuries, commentaries and arguments and legal analysis, and it is a massive collection. So you have the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud. I want to read to you a little from the Mishnah because these rules are the ones that the Pharisees in, in the New Testament are saying to Jesus, you're not following the rules. Was Jesus not following the Torah, what's written in the Bible? He was indeed following the Torah perfectly. The 613 commands of the Torah Jesus observed. He, however, was not, intentionally not, following all of these laws. These laws cover a lot of things in life. They basically take the Torah and they just drill it down to details. None of this is in your Bibles. I want to talk to you just briefly about some of the rules about the Sabbath. So what they're saying to Jesus is there are things going on on the Sabbath that break the rules. This is the rule they're talking about. Let me give you a couple of examples because there are two things I want to highlight about the Mishnah. I'll just tell you up front. I want you to realize the level of detail, which is admirable in some ways, and also the fact that there are disagreements in here. You'll see certain rabbis say this, certain rabbis say that. That's why sometimes in the New Testament you'll see people ask Jesus. Some say this, some say that. Where do you stand? They're saying, which house, which rabbinic school do you agree with? And so you'll see as I go into this. I want to talk about, uh, read you a couple of things from here about the Sabbath. Now, first of all, the Sabbath is Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. It was observed, it's the seventh day of the week. It was observed on Saturday at the beginning. It's still observed on Saturday today. The Sabbath is Saturday. Why do Christians worship on Sunday? You'll see in the book of Acts that it became the custom for Christians to gather together on the first day of the week and worship together. Well, the first day of the week in those days was Sunday. So the Sabbath is the seventh day, Sunday's the first day. So we're talking about Saturday. For Jews, Saturday runs from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. That's just the way the Jewish cycle works. So Saturday e or Friday evening at sunset, Jews all over the world, observant Jews, or at least somewhat observant, will light Sabbath candles because the Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday, runs to sundown on Saturday. That's the day they call Saturday, the Sabbath. 
So hopefully that makes sense, but I didn't want you to think about Sunday. This happening on Sunday. This is happening on a Saturday. So there were rules about what you could and couldn't do. What, are the, what does the Torah say? Torah says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Uh, you shall rest on the Sabbath. And that's about what you hear about the Sabbath. So they began to be concerned about what is work. And it gets to be unbelievably detailed. Here's a ruling. On the Sabbath... If a beggar comes to, I'll just tell you this, I won't read it to you. So if a beggar comes to the door on the Sabbath, homeowner opens the door. Okay, if the beggar sticks his hand inside and sticks his bowl in and puts it into the house, the hand of the guy inside, the beggar has violated the Sabbath by carrying something from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath, but the homeowner's good. If, however, the beggar comes to the door and stands there and holds his bowl and says, hey, can you help me out? And the homeowner takes a dollar out of his pocket and reaches outside and puts it in the bowl, then the homeowner has violated the Sabbath, but the beggar has not. So how do you get around this? I mean, this is the level of detail of what you could and what you could not do on the Sabbath. So how do you get around it? How could you possibly get this money in this beggar's hand? Here's how it works. So beggar comes to the door on the Sabbath and sticks his hand inside and said, do you have any money? Homeowner takes money out, puts it in his hand, doesn't reach outside the door. Beggar then doesn't do anything with the money, but he pulls his hand back out. Now they're both good. Neither one of them have violated the Sabbath. Now, I tell you that not to mock that. I tell you that to say that's the level of detail that you see. Who violated the Sabbath? Who didn't violate the Sabbath? I'll give you another example. Uh, here's one that talks about uh, the idea of uh, selling something to a Gentile or bearing uh, a burden. The house of Shammai, Shammai was a famous rabbi, lived before the time of Jesus. So the school of Shammai said that you may not sell anything to a Gentile, you may not carry anything with a Gentile, you may not put a burden on his back unless you can get to your destination while it's still daylight on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you violated the Sabbath. However, the school of Hillel, Hillel is another famous rabbi, lived at the same time, and they argued all the time. House of Hillel says, oh, as long as you load him up in daylight, doesn't matter when he gets there. So you actually even have some disagreements. Do you remember the time when Jesus was asked about divorce? May a man divorce his wife for any reason or only for marital infidelity? You know what they're asking him? That's a Mishnaic issue. You have one of the houses that says, you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. And the other rabbinic school says, no, you can't. And they're saying, which rabbinic school are you with? So that's what they're asking. There were also some disagreements in, uh, in these things. Here's another example. House of Shammai says, you cannot give your clothing to a Gentile dry cleaners unless he can finish dry cleaning them while it's still daylight. Hillel, they're the liberal guys, they go, nah, as long as you drop it off while it's daylight, it doesn't matter if he finishes it that day or not. But the point is, is you would have violated the Sabbath. You would then have committed a sin. This is what Jesus had trouble with. 
These are man-made rules or man-made extensions, if you will, of what's going on. So, back to our text. Two things are happening here. They thought that healing somebody on the Sabbath was work. It's a violation. But the other thing that's not good is him picking up this mat. I didn't read you that part, but him picking up this mat and taking it home is kind of like that beggar going from public area to private area. He can't carry that burden on a Sabbath. You're not, that's work. They consider that to be work. So that's what they're upset about. Now, I just have to stop and say, this is really interesting to me, that you see a guy who's been crippled for 38 years, and here he goes walking by, and the first thing that comes to your mind is, hey, why are you carrying that mat on the Sabbath? The, I mean, my thought would be, dude, you're walking. you got to tell me what happened here. But it kind of gives you an idea of that pharisaical idea. On the one hand, they're very devoted. On the other hand, it's sort of like you're kind of missing the main point here, right? But that what they ask him is, is, hey, you're in trouble. You're carrying that mat. We might kick you out of church for that. They said, who told you you could do that? And he goes, oh, hey, the guy that, that cured me, healed me. Look, you notice I'm walking here? Thanks so much, by the way, for noticing. You know, you notice I'm healed here? That guy told me I could do this. So it's not my fault. And they go, who is that guy? we got to talk to him. And so finally he realizes it's Jesus. And you see in the last verse, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him. And when it says the Jews, it doesn't mean all of the Jewish people. It means the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, the people who had a really vested interest in this. Most of the people who had a vested interest in this were the Pharisees. There was another group of Jews called the Sadducees. Sadducees ran the temple. And they were a little more fluent, a little less religious. In fact, they accepted the Torah. They didn't accept anything else. This, don't even talk to me about this. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get along, but they did share power together. And so the Pharisees were sort of like the religious police. The Sadducees just wanted to make sure you paid the temple tax, right? So they were a little more interested in money. But that's the environment, and Jesus is going to end up being at odds with both of them for pretty obvious reasons. Well, before we leave this story, though, because I want you to see what Jesus is doing. So this is a little less obvious than overturning the tables in the temple, but this is actually more serious to them because they believe that he is flouting their authority and flouting these man-made, these oral rules that they believe came from God. But there's one thing in here I have to talk to you about. This is one of the most interesting passages in Scripture so Jesus comes up to this guy. This is just a little sideline here. Jesus comes up to this guy who's been lame for 38 years. And of all the things you could have said, do you want to get well is not what I would have guessed. That is not what I would have guessed that he would say. But you know what? That's really pretty profound because I think it speaks to us through the centuries is it's a fair question to ask us sometimes, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be reconciled to God? Are you through with your sin? Notice he talked to him. He said the important thing is you need to stop sinning. He said, I healed your legs, but you need healing in a much bigger way. Because, you know, we have this tendency to get comfortable with our circumstances. 
I mean, we really have a tendency to get comfortable with our circumstances, and we have really have a tendency to get comfortable with our sin. Oh, it's a little sin. I've had this since it was a puppy. You know, this, I've grown up with this sin. This sin is well-trained. I've got this sin on a leash. When I say sit, it sits. When I say roll over, it rolls over. But you know, the interesting nature of sin is that it's sin, and it will kill you. The only question is when it will kill you. And we sometimes think we have it tamed, but we never really do. And I think Jesus knows that. And he basically comes to us and says, do you want to be well? Because if you do, what is Jesus going to do? He says, Get, take up your mat and walk. I have the power to make you whole. I have the power to reconcile you with God. I have the power for you to overcome the addictions, the difficulties, the dysfunctions, the sin that so eats us up in our life. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to make you well whether you want to or not. And so I think this is one of the more profound questions that Jesus asks us. And I think it's something to think about a little bit is, do I really want to get well or do I want this? Jesus, I want you to let me go to heaven, but I kind of need to take my pets with me. And I don't mean your dog or your cat. I mean my pet dysfunctions, my pet sins, my pet disobediences, my pet things that I have not surrendered to your control. And that's a question that is a profound question because of this, because Jesus, the door to heaven isn't wide enough for us and our sin to go through. And so Jesus asks us the same question. Are you willing to let go of all of that? Do you really want to get well? And I'm afraid sometimes my answer is maybe not. Maybe it's not so clear cut. So profound question. And when the man said, you know, I do want to get well, Jesus said, then pick up your mat and walk. That's really interesting, too, because it's hard to think of this as not being a miracle. You know, some people like to explain away the miracles of Jesus, which has always been curious to me. If you think there's a God who created the earth out of nothing, but then I'm going to balk at making a man walk, I mean, it just seems to me like create the universe out of nothing, heal somebody. I don't know, you know. I'd accept both of those things. This is interesting because you get somebody that's lame for 38 years, Jesus walks up and heals him. And according to the text, nobody doubted that. Even the Pharisees didn't doubt that. It's like, well, yeah, I guess he healed you because here you are running around like a spring chicken and you've been begging for 38 years and lame. Really interesting that this isn't sort of like, oh, you know, all you needed was just a little chiropractic here and you probably would be okay. You can't walk for 38 years. I don't care what society in. There's something really wrong something that needed to be literally supernaturally changed. So the, the miracle is profound, the question is profound, and the Pharisees, all they really want to know is, hey, who told you you could pick up that mat and walk? So Jesus begins to come into conflict with them, and after a little bit of time, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes back to the area of Galilee. This is in the north, this is a close-up, this map, of the area of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee in the province that was called Galilee, or the Galilee. And you see names that you're going to recognize here. I mean, Jesus is born, or lives, not born, lives in Nazareth. There's Cana, or probably, where Cana was. Jesus did a big miracle in Nain. We just haven't talked about it. Uh, Mary, the Magdal Mary Magdalene's from Magdala. 
You see Capernaum, where Peter has had a house. Uh, Bethsaida, Andrew, uh, and his brother from there. I want to show you uh, the remains at Chorazin. And the reason I want to show you this is all of these little towns had a synagogue in them. And Chorazin just happens to have the ruins that have been excavated at Chorazin are just really cool. I mean, it's not been recreated for you. I mean, you could do that, but it would kind of lose its flavor. I prefer to have a little imagination and see the actual stones and pillars that are there, and so do they. But what Jesus did in this next story happened in a synagogue. I don't know that it happened in Chorazin, but it happened in one of the synagogues in one of these little villages around here. But I want to show you this synagogue so you get a feel for what they look like. This is in the town of Chorazin, and this is the excavated remains of their synagogue. It's a good-sized synagogue. A couple of things that you notice, by the way, is you've got some small pillars, you've got some tall pillars. This is probably two stories tall. You've got a main area, and then you've got these side areas, both sides. What you can't see, well, I'll show you this later in a little picture, but this is a pretty good-sized little synagogue. This village probably had, you know, this village could have had 1,000 people or so, and let's face it, it's not like today where, what, 10% of your population goes to church? Oh, huge percentage of population would go to synagogue. So you can kind of get a feel for the size of the village from the size of the synagogue. Here's another view. You can see some of the pedestals and some of the work that are still there at this, this end of the synagogue. Here's another view looking at it from the other angle. But you can see some of the great, this is beautiful work up here. In fact, a lot of those stones, those carved stones, are there. They've just fallen down. Why did this thing get destroyed, by the way, is later in time, long after the time of Jesus, in the 8th century, there was a massive series of earthquakes through this part of the world. In fact, there are a lot of earthquakes there in general in that part of the world. And it looks like this was destroyed at some point by an earthquake. Not a tornado, an earthquake. Again, another picture of the synagogue itself. You can imagine how many people could sit in here. And then all around the outside are seats. These are the good seats. Around. They actually have backs. These are the donor seats around the outside. And then the other people would sit on the floor. Do you remember the passage in the book of James where James says, God doesn't show favor, I'm really paraphrasing this, God doesn't show favoritism and neither should you. What if a, a rich man comes into your synagogue and you say, oh, come over here and sit in the donor seats, you know, one of these nice seats along the side. Or a poor man comes in and you go, sit down there on the floor at my feet. What they're saying is, is the, the synagogue had a little bit of a social structure to it, and James is saying, we're not going to do that in the church. God doesn't show that kind of favoritism. We're not going to segregate this by social status. But you can see the remains of that in the synagogue. Here are a couple of uh, pieces. This is on the right. This picture on the right is a carved pillar right inside the door. It is beautifully done. You can tell they put a ton of care into this. In fact, as you're standing there, and this is another lesson for another time, you'll see the remains of houses all around this area. And the tallest building and the nicest building is the synagogue, right in the middle of town. There are no houses with this beautiful carving on it. In other words, their houses were plain, but their synagogue had the best 
that they could give to it. Their center of their village geographically was also the center of their lives, the worship of God. These are some of the carved pedestals. I don't know if you're into architecture. I'm getting more and more into it as I realize that's carved in stone. That's not easy. That's not cheap. I don't know about you, but if you're a handyman like I'm a handyman, you'd have to say, how many times would it take me to carve that to not goof it up? About 20. I mean, these things are perfectly carved. So there's a lot of work. There's a lot of beauty in this. By the way, right inside the door of this synagogue is an interesting little chair. And that is a Moses seat. And some of you are saying, what's a Moses seat? And uh, it's basically a seat in the synagogue where the most influential or powerful kind of person would sit. Let me give you an example of this. You may remember in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and they tell you what you need to do according to the law, and you do indeed need to do what the Torah says. So when he says they sit in a position of authority, and they tell you what the law says, and I know you don't like that, but he says, but you need to do the law. He said, but don't act the way they act. But that's Moses' seat. And so there's a Moses' seat in every synagogue. And so when he's talking about that, that's what he's talking about, is that chair inside the synagogue. Here's a picture of one of our groups as we stop in there and we talk about a number of things. And then I'll flip to the other end of the synagogue. You can see that pillar right inside the door. The Moses seat is right over there. And so we talk about various things. And I want to talk about one incident that happened in a synagogue, maybe not this one, but one obviously very like this, in Galilee that keeps with this theme of healing on the Sabbath and the conflict with the Pharisees. Because I want you to see we're about into the second year of Jesus' ministry, late into the second year, and you begin to see the conflict start that will result in his crucifixion in the third or fourth year. So, interesting story. Going from that place, he went into their synagogue. He's in Galilee now. And a man with a shriveled hand, in other words, it's saying he was, uh, his hand did not work, but it was also disfigured. It's, the Greek word behind it is not just, he's not like paralyzed, but his hand is disfigured and it's non-functional. A man with a shriveled hand uh, was there. Now looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they, that's referring back to some Pharisees he had been talking to, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? What are they asking him? They're asking him, Rabbi Jesus, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Well, they know that this says it is not okay to heal a person on the Sabbath. And so they're asking him, what do you say, Rabbi? Is it or is it not? They're looking for a reason to accuse him. If he says, yes, it is, then they're going to say, this man violates the law, the oral tradition, but this man doesn't follow the rules. Instead, Jesus does what actually a lot of rabbis did, but he does so well as he turns it around. And this is brilliant. Instead of answering, he says this, if one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? That's brilliant. Because in the Talmud, the commentary on this, you were allowed to help your sheep 
out of a hole if it fell into it on the Sabbath. So Jesus is using this oral law against them in the sense that he said, you're asking me if I can heal a person on the Sabbath. If any of you as a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't you take it out? And their answer is, that's lawful. He says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You notice he never actually answers their question. What he does is, is he exposes the double standard of this man-made law, doesn't he? He exposes the double standard. You can help your sheep, but you can't heal this man. That doesn't make any sense. The man's more valuable than this. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he doesn't give them anything that he can, they can actually accuse him and say, hey, he said it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. Well, he didn't exactly say it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. He just embarrassed us by pointing out the inconsistencies in our oral law. And so he says to the man, so he doesn't answer the question, but then he heals the guy. So then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and the hand was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Well, then the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The brilliant, one of the things I just want you to take away from this is how brilliant Jesus is. I know Jesus is the son of the living God, but he's also brilliant. I mean, think about this. Even the 21st century media couldn't get anything on this guy. I mean, he basically doesn't answer their question, but he actually heals the guy. And he also, at the same time, exposes how, what a double standard their law is. Now, here's the interesting thing. I want you to think about this. So this is on Saturday. Man's got a shriveled hand. His life's not in danger. I mean, this is not going to kill him, obviously. Jesus could have just waited till the next day to heal him. Did you ever think about that? Then the Pharisees have no problem with this at all. He goes, ooh, shriveled hand. You know what? I want to heal your hand. Why don't you come back tomorrow when the Pharisees won't care, and I'll heal your hand tomorrow. Why doesn't Jesus wait a day? Well, there's a theme that's running, another theme, interesting theme that's running through this. One of the passages I haven't uh, quoted for you, but one of the things he does in here is he said, I do these things so that you know that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, is Jesus violating the Torah? Is he violating the law of Moses? No, he is not. It says you shouldn't work. Who decided healing was work? These guys decided that healing the guy's hand on the Sabbath was work. And he said, no, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and you can still follow the Torah. But he chooses not to do it that way to make the point. So you might ask, is he trying to cause trouble with them? He's not trying to cause trouble with them, but he's not going to shrink away from the truth. And there are two truths here. The first truth is your oral law is a man-made law, and therefore it is not just. It is not fair. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. It was one of the ways that Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah. And the Jews understood that. And so you stop and think about it. They plotted how they might kill Jesus. Really? You're, and this sounds crazy to 21st century people. You're going to kill this guy because he miraculously healed somebody? Notice a pattern with the Pharisees. Nobody went up to the guy and said, whoa, let me shake your hand. Congratulations, this is awesome. No more than they did to the guy who'd been paralyzed for 38 years and go, praise God, look what happened to you. No, where do they go first is, hey, you can't do that on a Saturday. 
When we talk about being pharisaical, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about being pharisaical, sometimes we think that means you need to obey these rules. Jesus said, oh, you definitely need to obey these rules. If that's our standard, Jesus was pharisaical. But that's not what the New Testament means. The New Testament, when it talks about pharisaical, means I can't see your healing because I've got a problem with my own little customer tradition or man-made law. That's pharisaical. And that's what we really want to avoid. But there's another interesting question here that I thought I'd talk about is because sometimes you'll see Christians kind of take this story a different way and they'll say, you know what? Rules don't matter. What Jesus is teaching, and here's my question, do you think Jesus is teaching? Rules don't matter. What really matters is doing whatever is compassionate in any situation and that is going to be pleasing to God. Think about that for a second. That's not what this story is saying, but it's, a, it's something that you will hear quite a bit. And that is, you know, really, if you just want to be reconciled to God, if you want to be right with God, you just need to go out there and love people and be compassionate to people. Well, there's nothing wrong with loving people and being compassionate to people, but is Jesus really teaching us that in any situation, if you want to be right with God, just do what is compassionate in that situation? Well, if it violates this, that's a problem, isn't it? Because Jesus didn't violate this. Jesus sent the lepers to go make the sacrifices to Moses, uh, to the priests that Moses required. Jesus kept that commandment. Jesus does some things and says some things that don't sound very compassionate to us, but they are very obedient to God. So the first problem with that is that's not the example of Jesus. Jesus' example is obedience first. And obedience means compassion in many situations, but compassion never gets lifted up. Because really what's happening when we say that is, my God is really whatever I think is compassionate in the moment. Just kind of loving each other. You know, everybody holding hands, singing kumbaya around the campfire. You know, have a Pepsi together, Coke, and the world would be a better place. That's my God, not this God. I'm going to ignore the rules as long as I'm compassionate. That's not what Jesus is saying, first of all, because he did follow all the rules. But secondly, it really is flawed in this sense. Doing what we think is compassionate in any given situation is so unfair because none of us is really able. Think about Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, also happened around this time. Sermon on the Mount's given in this time period in Galilee. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, you have heard it said, love your friends, hate your enemies. And he's heard it said, you know, to be kind to your friends. He said, the pagans do that. He said, the sinners do that. He said, what I'm telling you is, I want you to forgive your enemies. I want you to pray for those that persecute you. The problem is when we set up compassion or just loving people as our standard, we are flawed individuals. We are not going to love our enemies like we love our friends. We will not do justice. Jesus calls for not love to be our God. He calls for God to be our God, which means we now love even our enemies. In other words, we will do good. We will pray for even our enemies. If our God is love, what you're going to find is we slip into the natural human state of I'm nice to the people I like, and I'm not so nice to the people I don't like. I'm forgiving to the people I like, but I'm not very forgiving to the people that I don't like. We end up 
We start out by saying, if we just love everybody, we'll have a great society. If you just say, I'm, my standard is loving people, you will quickly, quickly have a very unjust society. I want you to think about that a little bit. Because what Jesus is saying is obedience to God, and obedience to God means a different kind of loving people than we typically think. Let me pause and see if you have any questions there, but hopefully you kind of see two places, two lessons, but you start to see this thread of tension running through it that's going to continue to get even bigger. Question? Yes. Um, when it became customary in Acts for Christians to worship on Sunday, did the law, was the law for not working on Saturday eliminated or the law of not working on the Sabbath eliminated? Good question. When the Christians began to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, was the rule to not work on the Sabbath on Saturday still in effect for them? Let me reframe this question because it's a great question. We make it slightly bigger. In the Old Testament, I'll make this even worse. Okay, so in the Old Testament, Jews are commanded to observe the Passover. They're commanded to observe the Feast of Booths. They're commanded to fast and repent on the Day of Atonement. They're told to remember the Sabbath and don't do any work, rest on the Sabbath. They actually had a lot of special days that the Old Testament told them to do this. You'll see a number of places. This became a problem amongst the early Christians. I mean, because you have Gentiles, like you and me, most of us, who we were not Jewish, and we came to Christ from whatever pagan religions that we used to follow, and we brought our baggage from that, and we had to be re, you know, Christ had to reform our minds. But the Jewish people who believed in Jesus and became Christians came there, and they were carrying their, hey, the way I grew up, uh, God said we did all of this stuff. And some of them pointed to the Gentiles and said, oh, you guys need to do all of that stuff. You need to not work on the Sabbath. In fact, here, here's your copy, right? Follow all of this. Well, the early church across the board quickly rejected that. You especially see the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Matter of fact, Marty preached about this recently. In the book of Colossians, you'll hear him saying things like this. He'll say, listen... I know there are some Christians who have consciences that are still carrying baggage that they need to observe all these special days. In fact, that's the phrase he uses, these special days. He said, that doesn't make you right with God. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for you. You are not any more right with God or any more not right with God if you follow the Sabbath or if you observe the Passover or if you do any number of the things in the law of Moses. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. He kept the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. He said, I am ushering in a new covenant. The New Testament, that word testament means covenant. It's a new agreement. I finished the law. Didn't break it, finished it. I am the end point of the law. Now, here is the new covenant. And in most ways, the new covenant goes well beyond the law. Remember Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount at this very time in his ministry, you've heard it was said an eye for an eye. He said, but I say to you, forgive. That makes sense? So did the Christians, long-winded way of getting back to this, but it's a great question, is no, 
Christians were not obligated to do those things. Did the former Jews who became Christians, if their conscience said, I don't know, I still don't think we ought to be playing soccer on Saturday. Then Paul said, don't play soccer on Saturday. I want you to understand, it doesn't make you holier, it doesn't make you less holy. But you know what? That's okay. And he said to the Gentiles, these guys are having heartburn. Why don't we move our soccer games to Fridays? Can we just not do this for unity's sake? Does that make sense? That's the Christian response. That's 1 Corinthians 8, that's Romans 9, that's Colossians 2. I mean, that's what it's saying is that, no, you don't need to do that, but I really want you to be, let's bear with each other. Bear with the failings of the weak in faith. He didn't mean that in a disparaging term. He said, look, at the end of the day, can we all just not play soccer on Saturday? You know, and, and so what he's saying is, no, we don't have to, but he's asking for basically treat each other like family and, and let's you know, give people a little time to come around to that. So that was a really long answer, but that applies to many things in the Old Testament. Going back to the pools of Bethesda, is it possible that those were used as a mikvah for large groups of people since they were right next to the temple? They were used, oh, as a mikvah? Yeah, good question. What, is it possible that was used as a mikvah uh, since they was close to the temple. It does not, that's kind of a technical question, so I'll just go ahead and answer it and we'll move on. It does not appear to be the case for two reasons. Number one, you find many mikvot inside uh, the temple that are closer that appear to be used for that, not inside the temple, but inside the temple mount that appear to be used for that. And secondly, none of these pools are set up like a mikvah. So, is it impossible? No, it's not impossible, but it's extremely unlikely that it was used for that purpose. So, good questions. Well, let me go ahead and uh, kind of wrap this up by just trying to draw on a thread here. Historically, I want you to see Jesus into Jerusalem, back to Galilee, preaching as he goes, touching a lot of different places. And you see him from the very beginning as he overturns the tables and says, the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. And he talks to the Samaritan woman and said, even she can enter the kingdom of God if she has faith in the Messiah, in the Christ. Then he goes and he begins to violate these man-made laws to do what is good, to heal people. Not violating the law of Moses, but violating these man-made laws and kind of turning things upside down. He gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is, and it, the per, read it, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's basically Jesus turning things upside down. He said, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. You know, you have heard this, but I say even more to you. And he goes into the heart, and he begins to say, the law of Moses was very much, Paul calls the law of Moses, a school teacher to bring you up, raise you up, to come to Christ. And Christ said, now that you're grown up, if you will, I don't want to just talk to you about your behavior. I want to talk to you about your heart. That's going to drive all of your behavior to an even higher standard. And then on a personal level, I really want you to think about that question. Do you want to be well? And in your prayers this week, and I would urge you to pray every day, morning and night this week, and just answer that question honestly with God. It's like, God, that's a good question. Yes, I do, but you know what? I'm holding on to this, and I'm holding on to that. And let's talk about that. 
and answer that question in your prayer life this week. Well, in our next lesson, we're in the Galilee, and Jesus is going to do something that's really turning things upside down. He is going to go into some areas where the Gentiles are. This is like just something you didn't do at all. I mean, if healing on the Sabbath is bad, this is positively shocking. And so I want to take you to a couple of really interesting cities that are still really interesting and show you some of the things that Jesus was saying to people who didn't believe, who weren't Jews. That's what we'll talk about next time, assuming we're all still here after tornado Armageddon. See you guys next time.